They had loved each other before marriage with a pure and lofty love. They had first met on the seashore. He had thought this young girl charming as he passed by her with her light-colored parasol and her dainty dress amid the marine landscape against the horizon. He had loved her, blonde and slender, in these surroundings of blue ocean and spacious sky. He could not distinguish the tenderness which this budding woman awoke in him from the vague and powerful emotion which the fresh salt air and the grand scenery of surf and sunshine and waves aroused in his soul. She, on the other hand, had loved him because he courted her, because he was young, rich, kind, and attentive. She had loved him because it is natural for young girls to love men who whisper sweet nothings to them. So, for three months, they had lived side by side and hand in hand. The greeting which they had exchanged in the morning before the bath, in the freshness of the morning, or in the evening on the sand, under the stars, in the warmth of a calm night, whispered low, very low, already had the flavor of kisses, though their lips had never met. Each dreamed of the other at night, each thought of the other on waking, and without yet having voiced their sentiments, each longing for the other, body and soul. After marriage, their love descended to earth. It was at first a tireless, sensuous pas passion, then exalted tenderness, composed of tangible poetry, more refined caresses, and new and foolish inventions. Every glance and gesture was an expression of passion. But little by little, without even noticing it, they began to get tired of each other. Love was still strong, but they had nothing more to reveal to each other, nothing more to learn from each other, no new tale of endearment, no unexpected outburst, no new way of expressing the well-known, oft-repeated verb. They tried, however, to rekindle the dwindling flame of the first love. Every day, they tried some new trick or desperate attempt to bring back to their hearts the uncooled ardor of their first days of married life. They tried moonlight walks under the trees, in the sweet warmth of the summer evenings, the poetry of mist-covered beaches, the excitement of public festivals. One morning, Henriette said to Paul, "'Will you take me to a cafe for dinner?' "'Certainly, dearie. To some well-known cafe?' Of course. He looked at her with a questioning glance, seeing that she was thinking of something which she did not wish to tell. She went on, You know, one of those cafes. Oh, how can I explain myself? A sporty cafe. He smiled. Of course, I understand. You mean in one of the cafes which are commonly called bohemian? Yes, that's it. But take me to one of those big places, one where you are known, one where you have already supped, no, dined. Well, you know, I, oh, I will never dare say it. Go ahead, dearie. Little secrets should no longer exist between us. No, I dare not. Go on, don't be prudish. Tell me. Well, I... 
want to be taken for your sweetheart there, and I want the boys who do not know that you are married to take me for such, and you too. I want you to think that I am your sweetheart for one hour in that place which must hold so many memories for you. There, and I will play that I am your sweetheart. It's awful, I know. I am abominably ashamed. I am as red as a peony. Don't look at me. He laughed, greatly amused, and answered, All right, we will go tonight to a very swell place where I am well known. Toward seven o'clock, they went up the stairs of one of those big cafes on the boulevard, he smiling with a look of a conqueror, she timid, veiled, delighted. They were immediately shown to one of the luxurious private dining rooms, furnished with four large armchairs and a red plush couch. The head waiter entered and brought them the menu. Paul handed it to his wife. What do you want to eat? I don't care. Order whatever is good. After handing his coat to the waiter, he ordered dinner and champagne. The waiter looked at the young woman and smiled. He took the order and murmured, Will Monsieur Paul have his champagne sweet or dry? Dry, very dry. Henriette was pleased to, s to hear that this man knew her husband's name. They sat on the couch side by side and began to eat. Ten candles lighted the room and were reflected in the mirrors all around them, which seemed to increase the brilliancy a thousandfold. Henriette drank glass after glass in order to keep up her courage, although she felt dizzy after the first few glasses. Paul, excited by the memories which returned to him, kept kissing his wife's hands. His eyes were sparkling. She was feeling strangely excited in this new place, restless, pleased, a little guilty, but full of life. Two waiters, serious, silent, accustomed to seeing and forgetting everything, to entering the room only when it was necessary, and to leaving it when they felt they were intruding, were silently flitting hither and thither. Toward the middle of the dinner, Henriette was well under the influence of champagne. She was prattling along fearlessly, her cheeks flushed, her eyes glistening. Come, Paul, tell me everything. What, sweetheart? I don't dare tell you. Go on. Have you loved many women before me? He hesitated, a little perplexed, not knowing whether he should hide his adventures or boast of them. She continued, Oh, please tell me, how many have you loved? A few. How many? I don't know. How do you expect me to know such things? Haven't you counted them? Of course not. Then you must have loved a good many. Perhaps. About how many? Just tell me about how many. But I don't know, dearest. Some years a good many, and some years only a few. How many a year, did you say? Sometimes twenty or thirty, sometimes only four or five. Oh, that makes more than a hundred in all. Yes, just about. Oh, I think that is dreadful. Why dreadful? 
because it's dreadful when you think of it. All those women, and always the same thing. Oh, it's dreadful, just the same. More than a hundred women. He was surprised that she should think that dreadful, and answered with the air of superiority which men take with women when they wish to make them understand that they have said something foolish. That's funny. If it is dreadful to have a hundred women, it's dreadful to have one. Oh no, not at all. Why not? Because with one woman, you have a real bond of love which attaches you to her, while with a hundred women it's not the same at all. There is no real love. I don't understand how a man can associate with such women. But they are all right. No, they can't be. Yes, they are. Oh, stop, you disgust me. But then why did you ask me how many sweethearts I had had? Because that's no reason. What were they? Actresses, shop girls, or society women? A few of each. It must have been rather monotonous toward the last. Oh no, it's amusing to change. She remained thoughtful, staring at her champagne glass. It was full. She drank it in one gulp. Then putting it back on the table, she drew her arms around her husband's neck and murmured in his ear, Oh, how I love you, sweetheart. How I love you. He threw his arms around her in a passionate embrace. A waiter, who was just entering, backed out, closing the door discreetly. In about five minutes, the head waiter came back, solemn and dignified, bringing the fruit for dessert. She was once more holding between her fingers a full glass and gazing into the amber liquid as though seeking unknown things. She murmured in a dreamy voice, Yes, it must be fun. My God, my God, I'm going to write down at last what has happened to me. But how can I? How dare I? The thing is so bizarre, so inexplicable, so incomprehensible, so silly. If I were not perfectly sure of what I have seen, sure that there was not in my reasoning any defect any error in my declarations, any lacuna in the inflexible sequence of my observations, I should believe myself to be the dupe of a simple hallucination, the sport of a singular vision. After all, who knows? Yesterday, I was in a private asylum, but I went there voluntarily, out of prudence and fear. Only one single human being knows my history, and that is the doctor of the said asylum. I'm going to write to him. I really do not know why. To disembarrass myself? Yes, I feel as though weighed down by an intolerable nightmare. Let me explain. I have always been a recluse, a dreamer, a kind of isolated philosopher, easygoing, content with but little, harboring ill feeling against no man, and without even a grudge against heaven. I have constantly lived alone. Consequently, a kind of torture takes hold of me when I find myself in the presence of others. How is this to be explained? I do not know. I am not averse to going out into the world, to conversation, to dining with friends, 
but when they are near me for any length of time, even the most intimate of them, they bore me, fatigue me, enervate me, and I experience an overwhelming, torturing desire to see them get up and go, to take themselves away, and to leave me by myself. That desire is more than a craving. It is an irresistible necessity. And if the presence of people with whom I find myself were to be continued, if I were compelled not only to listen, but also to follow for any length of time their conversation, a serious accident would assuredly take place. What kind of accident? Uh, who knows? Perhaps a slight paralytic stroke? Probably. I like solitude so much that I cannot even endure the f vicinage of other beings sleeping under the same roof. I cannot live in Paris because there I suffer the most acute agony. I lead a moral life and there therefore am tortured in body and nerves by that immense crowd which swarms and lives even when it sleeps. The sleeping of others is more painful still than their conversation and I can never find repose when I know and feel that on the other side of a wall, several existences are undergoing these regular eclipses of reason. Why am I thus? Who knows? The cause of it is very simple, perhaps. I get tired very soon of everything that does not emanate from me, and there are many people in similar case. We are on earth two distinct races, those who have need of others, whom others amuse, engage, soothe, whom solitude harasses, pains, stupefies, like the movement of a terrible glacier or the traversing of the desert, and those, on the contrary, whom others weary, tire, bore, silently torture, whom isolation calms and bathes in the repose of independency, and plunges into the humors of their own thoughts. In fine, there is here a normal physical phenomenon. Some are constituted to live a life outside of themselves, others to live a life within themselves. As for me, my exterior associations are abruptly and painfully short-lived, and as they reach their limits, I experience in my whole body and in my whole intelligence an into intolerable uneasiness. As a result of this, I became attached, or rather had become much attached, to inanimate objects, which have for me the importance of beings, and my house has or has become a world in which I lived an active and solitary life, surrounded by all manner of things furniture, familiar knickknacks, as sympathetic in my eyes as the visages of human beings. I had filled my mansion with them. Little by little, I had adorned it with them, and I felt an inward content and satisfaction. I was more happy than if I had been in the arms of a beloved girl whose wanton caresses had become a soothing and delightful necessity. I had had this house constructed in the center of a beautiful garden, which hid it from the public highways, and which was near the entrance to a city where I could find, on occasion, 
the resources of society for which at moments I had a longing. All my domestics slept in a separate building, which was situated at some considerable distance from my house, at the far end of the kitchen garden, which in turn was surrounded by a high wall. The obscure envelopment of night in the silence of my concealed habitation, buried under the leaves of great trees, was so reposeful and so delicious that before retiring to my couch, I lingered every evening for several hours in order to enjoy the solitude a little longer. One day, Signad had been played at one of the city theaters. It was the first time that I had listened to that beautiful, musical, and fairy-like drama, and I had derived from it the liveliest pleasures. I returned home on foot with a light step, my head full of sonorous phrases, and my mind haunted by delightful visions. It was night, the dead of night, and so dark that I could hardly distinguish the broad highway and consequently I stumbled into the ditch more than once. From the custom house at the barriers to my house was about a mile, perhaps a little more, a leisurely walk of about 20 minutes. It was one o'clock in the morning, one o'clock or maybe half past one. The sky had by this time cleared somewhat and the crescent appeared, the gloomy crescent of that last quarter of the moon. The crescent of the first quarter is that which rises about five or six o'clock in the evening and is clear, gay, and fretted with silver, but the one which rises after midnight is reddish, sad, and desolating. It is the true Sabbath crescent. Every prowler by night has made the same observation. The first, though slender as a thread, throws a faint, joyous light, which rejoices the heart and lines the ground with distinct shadows. The last sheds hardly a dying glimmer and is so wan that it occasions hardly any shadows. In the distance, I perceive the somber mass of my garden and, I know not why, was seized with a feeling of uneasiness at the idea of going inside. I slackened my pace and walked very slow, softly, a thick cluster of trees having the appearance of a tomb in which my house was buried. I opened my outer gate and entered the long avenue of sycamores which ran in the direction of the house, arranged fault-wise like a high tunnel, traversing opaque masses and winding down the turf lawns on which baskets of flowers in the pale darkness could be indistinctly discerned. While approaching the house, I was seized by a strange feeling. I could hear nothing. I stood still. Through the trees, there was not even a breath of air stirring. What is the matter with me, I said to myself. For ten years, I had entered and re-entered in the same way, without ever experiencing the least inquietude. I never had any fear at nights. The sight of a man, a marauder, or a thief, would have thrown me into a fit of anger, and I would have rushed at him without any hesitation.
Moreover, I was armed, had my revolver, but I did not touch it, for I was anxious to resist that feeling of dread with which I was seized. What was it? Was it a presentiment? That mysterious presentiment which takes hold of the senses of men who have witnessed something which, to them, is inexplicable? Perhaps, who knows? In proportion as I advanced, I felt my skin quiver more and more, and when I was close to the wall, near the outhouses of my large residence, I felt that it would be necessary for me to wait a few minutes before opening the door and going inside. I sat down then on a bench under the windows of my drawing room. I rested there a little disturbed, with my head leaning against the wall, my eyes wide open under the shade of the foliage. For the first few minutes, I did not observe anything unusual around me. I had a humming noise in my ears, but that has often happened to me. Sometimes it seemed to me that I heard trains passing, that I heard clocks striking, that I heard a multitude on the march. Very soon, those humming noises became more distinct, more concentrated, more determinable. I was deceiving myself. It was not the ordinary tingling of my arteries which transmitted to my ears these rumbling sounds, but it was a very distinct, though confused, noise which came, without any doubt whatever, from the interior of my house. Through the walls I distinguished this continued noise. I should rather say agitation than noise. An indistinct moving about of a pile of things, as if people were tossing about, displacing, and carrying away surreptitiously all my furniture. I doubted, however, for some considerable time yet, the evidence of my ears. But having placed my ear against one of the outhouses, the better to discover what the strange disturbance was inside my house, I became convinced, certain, that something was taking place in my residence, which was altogether abnormal and incomprehensible. I had no fear, but I was, how shall I express it, paralyzed by astonishment. I did not draw my revolver, knowing very well that there was no need of my doing so. I listened a long time, but could come to no resolution, my mind being quite clear, though in myself I was naturally anxious. I got up and waited, listening always to the noise, which gradually increased and at intervals grew very loud and which seemed to become an impatient, angry disturbance, a mysterious commotion. Then, suddenly, ashamed of my timidity, I seized my bunch of keys. I selected the one I wanted, guided it into the lock, turned it twice, and pushing the door with all my might, sent it banging against the partition. The collision sounded like the report of a gun, and there responded to that explosive noise, from roof to basement of my residence, a formidable tumult. It was so sudden, so terrible, so deafening, that I recoiled a few steps, and though I knew it to be wholly useless, I pulled my revolver out of its case.
I continued to listen for some time longer. I could distinguish now in an extraordinary pattering upon the steps of my grand staircase, on the waxed floors, on the carpets, not of boots or of naked feet, but of iron and wooden crutches, which resounded like cymbals. Then I suddenly discerned on the threshold of my door an armchair, my large reading easy chair, which set off waddling. It went away through my garden. Others followed it, those of my drawing room, then my sofas, dragging themselves along like crocodiles on their short paws, then all of my chairs, bounding like goats, and the little footstools hopping like rabbits. Oh, what a sensation! I slunk back into a clump of bushes where I remained crouched up, watching. Meanwhile, my furniture defile passed. For everything walked away, the one behind the other, briskly or slowly, according to its weight or size. My piano, my grand piano, bounded past with the gallop of a horse and a murmur of music in its size. The smaller articles slid along the gravel like snails, my brushes, crystal, cups, and saucers, which glistened in the moonlight. I saw my writing desk appear, a rare curiosity of the last century, which contained all the letters I had ever received, all the history of my heart, an old history from which I have suffered so much. Besides, there were inside of it a great many cherished photographs. Suddenly, I no longer had any fear. I threw myself on it, seized it as one would seize a thief, as one would seize a wife about to run away. But it pursued its irresistible course, and despite my efforts and despite my anger, I could not even retard its pace. As I was resisting in desperation that insuperable force, I was thrown to the ground. It then rolled me over, trailed me along the gravel, and the rest of my furniture, which followed it, began to march over me, tramping on my legs and injuring them. When I loosed my hold, other articles had passed over my body, just as a charge of cavalry does over the body of a dismounted soldier. Seized at last with terror, I succeeded in dragging myself out of the main avenue and in concealing myself again among the shrubbery, so as to watch the disappearance of the most cherished objects, the smallest, the least striking, the least unknown which had once belonged to me.